0: You know there are just times when I get up here and I feel like the worship set was so great, like how can it even go uh how can it go up from here uh, and i don 't know if it will, but what I do know is that we are going to be looking at god 's word and he 's got some cool things for us today, so I am really looking forward to what we 're going to see in judges chapter six today. we are making our way through the book of judges and uh And I know some of you have made some comments about how it seems like Judges is pretty repetitive, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, This is the point of the book. We see the ups and downs of Israel, the the, uh, constant spiral that we've continued to see. Today we're going to be looking at a character that many of you are very familiar with. Uh, Many, even uh, children among us, have heard the story, I'm sure, and that is we're going to be talking about Gideon. Now I don't know what you've learned about Gideon. I don't know uh, what uh, you learned as a Bible story as a kid, or as you've studied him as an adult. I don't know what you know about Gideon or where you are, how you view Gideon. But uh, the Bible, as we look at Gideon, we're going to see Gideon is one of the most interesting characters in all of Scripture because we see that um, God uses him to do some great things. God gives him some great power to do some great things, and. Uh, he does that through a man who is flawed, who, a man who is weak, but then also, we're also going to see Gideon as we go through, and we won't get there today, but we're going to see Gideon, although starts in a way that God has given him the strength, ends up falling so far. And just like Israel, it's this up and down roller coaster that we will continue to see as we go through the book of Judges. So, with all that being said, in just a moment, uh, I am going to uh, actually show a video. And I know this is this is not normally what I would do. I don't normally show videos. I was looking, thinking about a good illustration for what we're going to talk about today. And instead of me telling you uh, an illustration, I want to show you an illustration. Now, what you're going to see in just a moment is a clip from the TV show, America's Got Talent. I'm not here to condone or endorse it. Uh, but I am going to just want you to watch this video. And I want you to notice the contestant. And I want you to notice uh, just uh, what... God can do through somebody that the world might look at and think there's no hope for this person. And that's the concept that I want you to think as we watch this video. Uh, if you have seen this video, you're gonna, you're gonna want to see it again. If you haven't, you're gonna, I believe, love to see this video just to see, uh, the beauty that God creates in people that we might not see the beauty right away. So with that being said, I'm just gonna, that's all I'm gonna say about that. And Gary's gonna show the video. It's about four minutes long. So just watch with me. I'm not, I don't know where Cody or his mom stands with Jesus. That's not the point here. But the point of what I wanted to show there was that what the world sees as weak can have great power. And, uh, and it's only through God's gift, whether he's a Christian or whether he's not, God has given him a gift to be able to play and to sing in that way. But you saw the look on the, the judges' faces, and maybe you had a similar look or a similar thought. You know, you see this. First time I watched this, I watched it and I thought, oh, Ah, uh, here we go, just another one of those publicity stunt type deals. And as soon as he started singing, I was like, this is incredible, I can't believe. And to my shame, you know, we see his disability and we see where he's at and we hear about his life and we think, surely uh, there's, he's not going to be able to do anything of significance in his life. And yet, we watch somebody who was seemingly so weak and so uh, flawed physically that he was able to have... What Maybe you didn't care for it, but most people I've talked to have really thought he did a great job. Uh, But the beautiful thing, again, is the talent that he was given. You would have never even given him a chance, a lot of us, just because of looking at his outward appearance and just looking at his disabilities. Now, we're going to be talking about Gideon, and he doesn't necessarily have any physical disabilities, but I would say that he has some uh, personality and spiritual disabilities that he's going to have to overcome to be the next judge that would deliver Israel. Uh, And he's going to need to do it by relying upon, you've guessed it, the strength and the power of God. And we're going to see that today. And before we get to Gideon, though, a little bit of review so that we catch up to where we've been. And so we're all together as we go forward. Before we enter Judges 6, so far in the book of Judges and at the end of Joshua, what we've seen God doing and what we've seen happening in the life of Israel, you see that God gave Israel the promised land of Canaan. He gave them the promised land that had been promised to Abraham uh, years and years before, promised to him, and now Israel has moved into this land and they have conquered it. But God tells them that they must drive out all of the people from the land. That is his commandment to them. At the end of Joshua, beginning of Judges, that's what we see God, God say. He says, look, there's some people that are still in the land, you need to drive them out. This indeed was a test. Israel started off in courage, but quickly gave in to compromise. They let their own selfish desires, their own convenience overtake them, and they began to compromise and sell out to other gods. And as they've sold out to other gods through the book of Judges, we've seen this carousel of compromise, this spiral, if you will, this cycle of apostasy, this carousel of compromise that continues to go, and it's this basic thing. These three words, I think, can sum it all up. There was five or six steps, but there's disobedience. They forget God, and they start following other gods. And then there's discipline. God brings someone or something, a nation, into the life of Israel to bring hardship uh, to discipline them for their disobedience, but then the discipline doesn't stay forever. God then moves them from discipline to deliverance, and the same nation, the same tool that God used to discipline His children, uh, the people of Israel, He then use, He uses a judge or a deliverer, a temporary savior, if you will, to deliver the people of Israel. We've seen several of those so far as we've looked through the Book of Judges. Last time we were together, we were talking about Deborah and Barak and how they were used. Uh, And how God used them. And God uses the humble. We've seen that already. God uses the humble. Deborah and Barak were a humble people who were submitted to God. And he used those humble people to humiliate his enemies. God wants to be clear and he shows it in so many different ways as we looked at chapters 4 and 5 that God is God over all and he is greater and stronger than anything or anyone in the world including all the nations of Canaan and he shows that to them by humiliating them in so many different ways and because he is a God who uses the humble to humiliate his enemies a God who is going to fight for his own glory he is to be praised We looked at that last time we were together as we talked about the book of Judges, that Deborah and Barak took the time to praise and worship God after his deliverance. They didn't just take it for granted or take credit for themselves, but in their humility they praised him. And so we've seen that happening so far through the book of Judges, and now we come to Judges chapter 6. After things seem to be going in a great direction for Israel, Deborah and Barak have led Israel out of their oppression And they just got done praising God. And then we read at the end of chapter 5, and the land had rest for 40 years. 40 good years of peace and rest. 40 good years that God has continued to bless them, even though they still have not deserved it. And the deliverance is always greater than the discipline. We've seen that. His grace is always stronger and bigger than the sin. And that's what we see here for 40 years. God gives grace to Israel. But in chapter 6... We see the same song again that we 've already seen several times before we read. I just want to point out the main point today, and uh, this is not totally unique to me i 've heard several other preachers say something like this, but the main point today that I want us to understand is that god doesn 't call those who are strong; he gives strength to those he calls and, and i don 't this is not a uh, always never proposition. God obviously sometimes will call strong people. But not strong, not ones that are strong in their own selves, but those who are strong in him. So God doesn't call those who are strong. He doesn't call those who the world says should be called. And we have numerous examples throughout scripture, but we're going to see that here in the person of Gideon. But God, although he might not call those who are naturally strong, he does give strength to those he calls. He gives the strength because he is the strength. And that's what we'll see today as we look at the beginning part. Of Gideon and what God does through him, with that being said, uh, I would like to read judges chapter six, um, and for today, uh, we are just going to read up until um, let's see how far do I go uh, twenty seven I believe we 're going to go all the way to twenty seven yep, so chapter six one through twenty seven of the book of judges, if you would join me, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents, and they would come across like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery.' And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave, the, gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in the, whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Ophrah, at which belonged to Joash the Abiz was, wow, the Abiz, right? Uh, Whose son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian do I not send you? And he said to him Please Lord how can I save Israel Behold my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him But I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him Now if now I have found favor in your eyes then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an effa of flour, and the meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them to him. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Orfra, which belongs to the Abizites. The Abiz- <laughs> wow. The Abizites. Abizrites. I read this several times this week. Anyway that night the Lord said to him take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down so Gideon took the men of his servants and uh, ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day he did it by night. Alright, so this is what we see. We are introduced to Gideon. We're introduced to Gideon, and, uh, uh, but before we're even introduced to him, we gotta see where Israel is at. Uh, the first point today that we see if God needs to deliver Israel again, because Israel cried out to God at their weakest point, verses 1 through 10. We read it, and the description is pretty terrifying. Israel is at a really, really low point, one of their weakest points they've ever been. And Israel has to cry out, and some of the low points they're at is because Midian and its allies have completely and utterly just ran over, literally, Israel. They have taken the land, they have desecrated the land, so much so that we're told here in chapter 6 that the people of Israel are basically hiding in caves. They're hiding, they're cowering, they have no might, they have no strength, they have no hope. And they're constantly being uh, just run over uh, and the amount of people, it just they're like locusts that just come and take and eat everything, that just lay waste to the land. No matter when they would plant their, their crops, that's when Midian would come and destroy all their crops. It was like you couldn't do anything without it being destroyed. And so Israel is one of the lowest places they've ever been. They have really little to no hope and absolutely no strength. And so they cry out to God because... What else can they do? They can't do anything else, and we've seen this with Israel, and uh, it's hard to make a judgment on whether they truly are asking uh, God because they really trust Him, or just because they're so desperate, they have no other option. And I don't know, but here it seems like it's almost to the point of they just don't have any other option. So they cry out to the Lord. They cry out to God and say, we're being oppressed, we need you to deliver us. They're crying out for the help of the Lord, as we're told in verse 6. So they did, so they're at their weakest point. We've seen that they have done what is evil and followed other gods. Again, this is, you know, broken record. They did what was evil. They followed other gods. This is what Israel continues to do. Deborah and Barak give them, they have great victory. God shows himself to be a great victor. And 40 years later, they do what's evil. They follow other gods and they must be disciplined again. So the Midianites have dominated them and forced them into hiding. I already mentioned that. The Midianites have dominated them and have forced them in to hiding. It's the Midianites that God uses to discipline his people, and he raises them up to come in and bring it to the point where Israel has nothing left to do other than to cower and to hide with the strength of Midian. Remember, again, this is God's doing. He is never a God who just sits back and lets things happen and he doesn't have control. God is in control over this whole process. We've seen that sin deserves discipline. There needs to be something that will pay for the sin of the people. And now we know, looking forward for us, all the sin was paid for in Jesus. But at this point, God is disciplining his people because they continue to go to other gods. They continue to commit adultery, spiritual adultery. They continue to do this. So then God sends a prophet. Now this is different than some of the other stories we've already seen and some of the stories we'll see after this. Usually after Israel cries out, God sends a judge or a deliverer right away. Now, he will be doing that as we look at at uh, at Gideon in just a moment. But first of all, God sends a prophet. And the prophet reminds Israel why they have been brought so low. You see, I think God understood that they had no other option other than to call on God. And I think, and we're going to even see this in a moment with what Gideon says about God, I think Israel is all in this very similar place. Basically, they're a place of like, God, why are you doing this? You obviously don't love us. And basically, you're saying, God, you're not even here. Because life has been so bad, there's no way that you even exist, in a sense. And and, and so they're they're crying out, and God sends a prophet to remind them why they're at where they're at. This is not because God just wanted to be some mean, vengeful bully, and just take Israel and say, ha, I'm going to make you hide in caves. No, God sends a prophet to remind them, first of all, who he is, and also what they've not done. God sends this prophet, prophet comes, and he, he says, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of slavery. "'I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians "'and from the hands of those who oppressed you. "'And I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. "'And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. "'You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites "'in whose land you dwell.'" So God reminds them, first of all, of who he is, what he's done. Through the prophet, God says, listen, I'm not the bad guy here. Remember what I've done. Remember who I am. Remember that I have brought you out of Egypt, and I've given you the promised land as I said I would. So there's no blame to be found in the sense of saying this is somehow God's ultimate fault, or, or to blame him in this sense. And then God says, But I, so I told you, after I did all this for you, I said, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell. God says, I've told, i done all these things. I've shown my grace, my mercy. I've shown my power. And I told you, all that I expect is for you to not follow other gods. But then he says, I gave you that command. And what did you do, Israel? He says, you did not obey my voice. Basically, what God is saying here is, The place that you're in, as low as it is, as bad as this is, this is because of your disobedience. This is because Israel refused to make God their God, to really, truly trust Him completely. They continued to compromise. And so we see that they have done evil. We see that God has reminded them why they are where they are at. And I don't know what Israel thought at this point, if they thought, well, maybe they were done for because... There's no mention here when the prophet comes that says, but nevertheless I will deliver you. But God is already at work, and God is going to deliver them. But remember, this is on the heels of reminding them, look, you've really messed up here, you have disobeyed, and now God's going to anyway, despite the fact that they have disobeyed, despite their sin, is going to show them grace, as we see as he calls Gideon. And that's our second point today, is that Gideon is called to deliver Israel. Gideon is called to deliver Israel. He is called to be the next judge, a temporary deliverer, a temporary savior. He is the one that has been called now, we're gonna, as we read, that he is called of God to be the one to deliver Israel from Midian. And so we're going to see this, uh, but we're going to see how God calls him to do this. But first, I just want to take a moment to see who, who is this Gideon? Who is this Gideon? We're introduced to Gideon right in verse 11, and I don't want you to miss this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Orphra and belonged that belonged to Joash the Abizirite, and his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So the 1st we're introduced to Gideon, and the first thing we see about Gideon is Gideon is hiding. Gideon is hiding in a winepress, which would have been like a pit in the ground. He's hiding there to... to to doing his work, beating out the wheat. And he's doing his farming, and he's doing his work. But remember, Midian has been coming in and just destroying everything. So what does Gideon do? Gideon is hiding. He's, he's cowering in this pit as he is afraid that the Midianites might see what he's doing and take away the, the, the grain that he's working on. Now, I'm not, I'm not blaming Gideon for this. Many of us would probably be in the same place. But we see that Gideon was a fearful man. We see that Gideon was definitely a fearful man. He did not have natural bravado. He was not the one that you would look for if you' were trying to uh, you're, you're trying to uh, write a script for an action movie. This is not the type of character that you would write into the movie he's not brave he's not strong he's not going out to 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 show them uh, his strength he's not going out uh, to to rebel he's not going out to push against Midian he is hiding he is fearful he is a fearful man and he's hiding in the wine press when he's called originally in verse 11 at the end of our passage and I know this is after his original call but after he gets called he does obey God which is amazing and great that he obeys God but we're even told in verse 27 even in his obedience he is still a fearful man so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, to to take down the the altar of Baal. And we'll talk about that more uh, in a couple of weeks. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. He waited till it was dark. Even when obeying God, he hides in darkness. We see that Gideon's natural bent, his natural way of going about things is to hide and to be fearful. And so he hides in the darkness as he does what God says. Now, God does not... Uh, condemn him for either of these things, for being in the pit or or for doing it at night. But it does show us a little bit about who Gideon is. Gideon is naturally a fearful person. He's afraid of people. He's afraid of what might happen to him. So he hides. And so the next thing we see about Gideon, though, in this passage is not only was he a fearful man, but Gideon was a doubtful man. He was a doubtful man. We're talking about someone who would be a hero to Israel, a, a hero for God, And yet we see that he even doubts God's own presence. Judges chapter 6, again, as we're looking at this, what we see is that he doubted God's presence. That's where it started, verse 13. Verse 13, this is... The angel of the Lord is writing, or is talking to him. He doesn't know that the angel of the Lord is... He doesn't really recognize him as the angel of the Lord yet. But he appears to him and says, The Lord is with you basically says, God is here with you, O mighty man of valor. Which, by the way, is very interesting that he'd be called a mighty man of valor as he's hiding in a pit. But I believe this points to the fact of what God knows what he's going to do through Gideon. And he says, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Interesting here what is what is Gideon's attitude about God and about where they're at and I already spoke to this I believe this is just a reflection of the rest of Israel but his understanding is that he doubted God's presence. God isn't really with us. Look what's happening. Look how bad our life is. Look how bad things have gotten. Surely God is not here. Surely God is not really in charge. Surely God is not present. In verse eleven it's very clear that this is the heart of Gideon. Not only was he fearful, but he was doubting God himself. And just as a short aside here, we can do the same thing. If things aren't going our way, things aren't going the way we think they should, we we are very tempted to go and say, God, why are you why are you doing this? This is unfair, this is unjust, God, this isn't right. You are you obviously don't even care. You're not even here. You don't even care. You, you say you're present, but man, the way my life is right now, there's no way that you actually care about me. And me might not say that because we're not supposed to and we know that people would think ill of us. But a lot of us probably have been there where we've thought that. But I just want to say, don't equate bad things happening in your life with the fact that God is not present take some time to really think about why you are where you're at and maybe God is wanting to do I know God is wanting to do something good in the situation you are in because Romans 8 tells us that if we will love him and we will obey him and he is looking to do something good in us and maybe that means we need to repent of a sin maybe that just means we need to trust him more I don't know what it might be but don't equate bad things in your life happening with God not being present God is always there God is always here God is always in control and he does care the Bible is clear Scripture after scripture we could read this morning about God's care for his children. God is here and God cares and God loves. But sometimes that doesn't mean that he gives us all the things we want or all the comfort that we feel we deserve. Gideon made a mistake here. Gideon was not a man of faith. He, he didn't believe that God was involved. He was blaming God for what had happened. And yet God is going to use him anyway, which I find just amazing. As I said, Gideon didn't have I mean, maybe he did, but not that we know of, any physical disabilities. But personality-wise, he's fearful, he's doubtful. Spiritually, he's doubting God. He's not the guy. If I was going to be writing the book of Judges and I'm going to be writing about Gideon, I'm not going to start. This is not the guy I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose another guy that I can talk, that I can start writing about and saying this was a guy. He was out and he was a rebel and he was trying to get at Midian and God said, "Okay, now I'm going to give you the strength and now you can destroy Midian." I would pick somebody who was trusting in God. Right, the hero, uh, J- the Joshua. Right, the Joshua that comes and said, "I'm going to be. I trust in God and and my me and my house we're going to." Find Follow the Lord. And and, you know, I would pick that type of guy, but for whatever reason, God now is calling this Gideon guy who's fearful and doubting even in his own presence. But the other thing that, that Gideon doubted was his own qualifications. His own qualifications. Verse 15. Verse 15. And the Lord, well, 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon even doubts that he is qualified to be able to be the one to deliver his people. Even though now he, he even calls him Lord, he's looking at him as this guy, he knows this guy is talking about stuff that he should be listening to. and He says, but this can't be me. You got this wrong. It's not me. I'm too weak. I'm from one of the most insignificant clans of the ins- most insignificant tribes. Uh, right now, Israel is like one of the most insignificant nations. Like a weak nation, a weak tribe, a weak clan, a weak family, and he's the weakest of them all because he's the youngest. And this is, why would you pick this guy? And that's how Gideon is feeling. And he says, not only am I doubting that God is really present in this, not only am I doubting that God is really caring, but also I doubt that there's any way that I could actually be used to do this. Gideon is really, and we've seen this before with Moses and others, Gideon is making excuses to get out of serving God. He's saying, I'm too weak. I'm not strong enough. I'm not the type that you can use. Let me just say to all of us, let's make sure that we are not in that same mindset. God has great plans and wants to use us whether it's in ministry, or maybe it's in a situation in our family, or maybe it's in a situation at our job, whatever it might be, and God says, I am calling you to do this, and you know that you need to do something, and yet we make excuses, and we say, I can't do that. I know I'm supposed to share the gospel with my my friend across the street, but I'm not, I don't really like talking to people. Like, that's just not my thing. Like, I can't really do that. I'll, I'll you know, I'll give them an invite to church, and then I'll let, uh, you know, one of the pastors tell them about Jesus. No, So that's an example. Or there's another example, and there's Somebody in your family that you need to make a, a reconciliation with, for instance. And you say, well, uh, I'll wait on them. And I, this isn't, I'm not really wanting to disrupt anything. And so I, I'm not, I'm not, it's not worth it. Whatever excuses we might make, that's what Gideon is doing. And but God has someone great. He's telling him, I have this great plan for you. And Gideon is doubting. So don't doubt what God can do. But that's exactly it. See, Gideon is focused on himself. He's not focused on what God can do. Which gets us to our final point this morning. We're going to see that as God calls Gideon, God gives strength to Gideon. God gives strength to Gideon. God is the one who speaks to Gideon and says, you're going to be used. This fearful, doubtful man who is really not the person that any of us would choose or the world would say this is a hero material. And yet God chooses him to show his strength. You see, God answers his doubt in verses 13 through 16 his doubt of whether the Lord is actually present and caring. God says, and the the Lord said to him, go in this might of yours and save Israel. He says, you can do that. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Because my clan is weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. What does God say to him? He says in verse 16, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. In other words, when you face Midian, it'll be like they're just one person. That's how much of a victory you will have. And Gideon says, If I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till I return. And we're going to see in just a moment what else happens in this situation with Gideon and God. But God, first of all, answers his doubt and says, You may doubt that I am present. You may doubt that you are able. But I am going to be with you and therefore it's going to happen. God makes it very clear. Gideon, this isn't about you. Gideon, this is not about where you come from. Gideon, this is not about your whining and thinking that somehow this is my fault. Gideon, this is about me delivering the people of Israel through you. And he says, So, Gideon, it's not about you, it's about me. And he says, I will be with you and you will have victory. You know, at this point, and I I don't like doing this, I don't want to put myself as you know in the seat of God, but I you know, if you think about What I would respond to somebody like this, if they were like, I don't really believe that you even care, and I can't really do this, I'm too weak, I'd just be like, okay, fine, I'll find somebody else. That's not what God's doing here. He says, remember, Gideon, this isn't about you. This is about me. And God wants to make that clear, and we're going to see that even in the battle, how clearly we see that God is the victor, and God is the one that receives all the glory and gives all the strength. So God gives strength to Gideon. He first does it by answering his doubt. He also dispels his fear. We started reading in verse 17, and uh, we'll continue on, and we see what happens. Gideon in verse 19. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an effa of flour, and the meat he put in a basket, and he broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to, to him under the terebinth and presented them to him. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock. And consumed all the meat and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abizirites. So, God dispels his fear. So, even after God says I'm going to be with you, I'm going to give you victory, then Gideon's like, "Yeah, but how do I really know this is you that's talking to me? Like, this could be anybody. Maybe you're an impostor. I, I don't know." Uh, so Gideon says, "Well, what can I do? Uh, I, can I? Can I? If I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign." He's like, "I want to make sure this is really you, God. Is this really like this? Is this really of God?" And so Gideon uh, does this whole thing where he brings the meat and the broth, and uh, he puts it. He puts the broth over the meat, and uh, the angel of the Lord touches it. It consumes. It gets consumed with fire, and then the angel of the Lord disappears, vanished from sight. And at that point, Gideon perceives that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, "O oh Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face." So we have this encounter that Gideon has. And his fear is being transformed as God is confirming with him that, yes, Gideon, I am the one calling you. And since I am the one who is all-powerful, I will give you victory. And as Gideon sees this and understands that this messenger is indeed of God and of the Lord, he now knows that God is on his side. And all of a sudden, then he is filled. He's seen the Lord face to face. And this is how the Lord responds. The Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, for you shall not die. This is partially, why would God have to say this to Gideon? Let's think about this. I'm Gideon. I just got done complaining to this guy about how God isn't really with us and how I really can't do anything because I can't be used. And now all of a sudden I've realized this guy I've been talking to is a representative of Yahweh, the Lord God. I think Gideon's pretty scared at this point that probably he's going to be struck down. Uh, It wouldn't be a crazy thing to think. But God says, don't fear, you shall not die. He says, peace. And then Gideon builds an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. We go from seeing Gideon who is a fearful man to now who is receiving peace from God. Uh, Really, a lot of it is. The opposite of fear is peace. There's no longer this anxiety. There's no longer this fear. And he sees God as being his peace. And so we see that he has some peace. Now, he still has not completed the process because we still have yet to see him do this whole thing by night, which we'll look at in the next time we talk about Gideon. So there's still some fear in his heart. There's still some fear in his personality. But he understands that God is the one that will give him peace. And so God answers his doubt. God dispels his fear. But I want to notice the key element with both of these things. Both his doubt and his fear are dealt with by God Both are changed by God's presence. Both are changed by God's presence. Once again, verse 12, we've already read it. But what does God say at the very beginning of this whole calling of Gideon? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Later on, as we already saw in verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he realizes even as he builds this altar that the Lord is there and the Lord is bringing peace. The answer to doubt, the answer to fear. So maybe today you're doubting God, you're doubting yourself. You're fearful, you're anxious, you don't know what your life is going to be. You're in a place where you're just struggling for strength and for understanding. It doesn't come through trying to figure it out on your own or trying to give yourself strength. It comes through resting in the presence of God. Isaiah 41.10 is another Old Testament passage that reminds us of the presence of God can dispel all fear. It can answer all doubt. Uh, Isaiah 41.10. And this is written to Israel at a time when they're still being rebellious, at a time that they still need saving, as they always do. But in in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, this is the, the verse we read. And God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says this to Israel at a later point in their history, but I believe the same thing is being said to Gideon. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear and doubt and dismay and weakness, all of these things are dispelled as we trust in the presence of God, that we remember that He's with us, that we honor that he is with us, that we don't question his presence but that we embrace his presence and we know that God is with us and we go forward in his strength and not our own. You see Gideon if he would have gone forward in his own strength would have been a complete disaster. Actually at the end of his life we're going to see that's what happens. But Gideon here knows now that God is with him and that's where he finds his strength. That's where his doubt is dispelled, that's where his fear is dispelled is in the presence of God. He said God says to Gideon Gideon stop your excuses, stop worrying, stop being fearful, stop doubting, because I'm right here. Yet so many of us live a life of doubt and fear. And we forget, and we don't respect and think about the fact that Jesus, remember when he left the earth, his last thing that he said to his disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That was his hopeful statement as he left. Go and make disciples, but by the way, I'm with you. No matter what comes, no matter how hard life gets, no matter how many persecutions you might face, what Jesus says throughout his whole ministry is that all of these things are coming, but then he says right at the end, but guys, remember, I am with you always. Always. Not just sometimes, not just when he feels like it, not just when we feel like it, but he is with us always. And we can have great hope that can fight against our doubt and our fear. Got to get to uh, these few things of application this morning as we conclude this portion of Gideon's life. The calling of Gideon. And I know we read verses 25 through 27 and uh, we will get to that next time. We're going to talk about how God uses Gideon and how that whole thing happens. But right now I just want us to focus and think about this idea of that God doesn't always call the strong but he always gives strength to those he calls. That God is looking to give strength he is he is looking to take someone that the world would say has no hope and take someone and use them in a mighty way because it's about God and it's not about them. It's about Him. It's not about them. So my question to all of us today, and all three of these questions can be posed to both people who may be sitting here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You came to church, for maybe you were invited, you weren't sure what to expect, but maybe you're here and you don't know this Jesus that I've been talking about. You don't have a relationship with Jesus well you can have a relationship with Jesus and he made it very clear that Jesus uh, he lived a perfect life on this earth so that he would one day be able to die on a cross for your sin and for my sin and to take the punishment that all of us deserve and he, he put that on himself as he died on the cross and he said, I'm going to pay for the sins of those people. I'm paying for the sins of the people that don't deserve it. But I'm, but this is grace and this is mercy. And God showed his great great grace and his great mercy by sending Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven for our sins if we will trust in him. And he rose again. And when he rose again three days later, it it, it was it made it obvious and known that the pen, the penalty, the, the sacrifice that was given was indeed the payment for sin. And it worked. And God, And Jesus rose again. And he showed that sin and death had no power. And so if you're living a life today and maybe you feel weak, maybe you feel like you are living in fear, maybe you are living in doubt, and you don't know which way is up, but you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never trusted him for salvation. You've never put your life in his hands and said, God, I need to trust you. And Jesus, I know that you died for me. And Jesus, I know you rose again. I know that you're in heaven waiting for me. I know that you're coming back. All of these things, I trust in Jesus and what he's done and who he is so that I can be saved and have eternal hope, eternal life, and eternal peace. That only comes through Jesus. And so if you want to know Jesus, you need to come to him in faith. Believe in him, believe in who he is, what he's done. And if you have any more questions about that this morning, talk to myself, talk to anyone you see here that you are confident is a believer in Jesus. And we can tell you how this relationship with Jesus changes everything. That leads us to the next few things to say. So even as Christians today, are we weak and weary? Are you weak and weary? Maybe life has just beat you up. You have just been destroyed and I don't know why. Maybe it's because of your own sin. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's because of somebody else's sin. But you are weak and you are weary and you just need to find strength. The temptation is, well, I need to figure out a way to be strong. I need to strengthen myself. But that will never work. That will never work. I want to read to you the, from the Apostle Paul, Second Corinthians. And some of you will know this, these verses. Second Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul makes it very clear, and you know, we don't know exactly what this thorn in his flesh was. Some people think it was his blindness, some people think it was uh, some other physical ailment, some people think it was a spiritual problem that he was facing. I don't know exactly what this weakness was that he was facing. But what I do know is whatever this weakness is, he understands that it's to humble him. He understands that God is in control. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Your power, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Notice Paul didn't complain and say, wait a minute, God. Bad things are happening to me. You must not be there. You must not care. Now Paul comes to God and he asked to have this thorn removed, this hardship removed, whatever it might be. And what God says is, My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul is reminded, as he goes on to say, that he is content with all weaknesses, because when he is weak, he is strong. But he's not strong out of his own ability. He's strong because Jesus is his strength. So if you are weak and weary, you need to find your strength in Jesus. Run to him, embrace his presence. You see, a lot of people respond by running away, but that's the worst thing you can do. Run towards him. Run towards his presence. Whatever that looks like for you. Maybe it's to make church more of a priority. Maybe it's to read his word more often. Maybe it's to just spend time each day just just reflecting on him and praying and asking for his help and his mercy and his grace. I don't know what it is for you, where he, but God will make that clear if you just ask him. Like, God, I'm, I'm so weak. I'm so weary. I need your strength. Please show me and follow him. Are you living a life of fear right now? Whatever that fear might be, maybe it's over a circumstance, or maybe it's over uh, your a family member. Maybe it's uh, you just are fearful. Some people are just fearful about everything. It's like you can't go anywhere without thinking that something terrible is going to be happen. Like I've got family members that are like that. Not like close, close family members, but distant family members. It's like if something, if they can't be watching something, they feel like something bad is going to happen all the time. But are you fearful? Are you fearful about life? Are you fearful about what's coming? Are you fearful about the future? Fearful about today? What is it that you find fear and you were just paralyzed by anxiety? This is a world that there are so many anxious people. Listen, the answer is not to go to the world and find out what would please me and make me feel good so that I no longer have to feel fear or anxiety. The answer is Jesus. We can find peace in Jesus. so are you living in fear? And First John talks about this. And I want to read these verses. I know we're getting towards the end of our time. But as we look at First John. We look at this and we see what Jesus says about. What we're told in God's word. What John writes. But we're told as God tells him to write it. In First John 4.13. thirteen. First John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides with him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love God has for us and that God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. As we think about this passage, we think about the fact that Jesus showed us perfect love. And if we will embrace the perfect love that he's shown us through the death and resurrection and through his constant intercession for us, then fear no longer has a place. Because love is triumphant. His love, as we look to him and his presence and what he's done for us through the person of Jesus Christ, we can have peace and not fear. And finally, are you living in doubt I don't know. Are you doubting God? Are you doubting yourself? And I don't say doubting yourself in like the, the secular idea of, oh, you gotta always make, you gotta always think good about yourself. No. Are you doubting that God can really use you? Maybe there's a ministry that you know you should be a part of. And you say, I'm just, not my thing. I don't think I can do that. Maybe it's somebody you need to talk to and you're like, I'm just not, that's not my personality. Maybe there's something in your life that you know you need to be doing that God is calling you to do that God is showing you and you're just, you're doubting you're, that you can be used. You're doubting that God is really the God He says He is, which is a God who will give you strength to do anything. If that's you, you can find hope in Jesus. Find hope in His presence. Remember, He is always with us. His presence is there. And so we can trust that. One last passage this morning in First Corinthians. First Corinthians, chapter one, verses 26 through 31. First 1 Corinthians 1:26 1, through 31. Well, it's not 26, because, oh no, I'm in the wrong book. Sorry, guys. Uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Are you living in doubt, fear, or are you living in a weak and weary state? 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 tells us, God is not interested in making sure that you are finding your strength or your significance in yourself or in this world, but you only find what is truly important in Christ Jesus. Verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, now catch this, who became to us wisdom from God. Not our own wisdom, but it's wisdom from Christ. It's the wisdom of Christ. Righteousness, not our own righteousness notice. And sanctification, becoming holy. That, that's not something we do. It's something that is given to us. And then finally, redemption, that we have been redeemed, that we have been forgiven, that we have been given new life. And it's all in Jesus, not in us. There's nothing we can do. And therefore, we can't boast. Our only boast is in Jesus Christ. And so, if you are living a life that is weak and weary, or a life that is characterized by fear or doubt, run to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his presence. Find strength in him, not in yourself. With that, I'll close in prayer as our worship team comes to share a final song. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder of your presence and for the reminder that no matter how weak or weary or fearful or doubtful we might be, no matter how weak we are from the outside looking in, Lord, that you can use any one of us. Because it's not about us, it's about you. Lord, I pray for those who are here in this building right now. Any of those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that you draw them to yourself. Allow them to see their need for a relationship with a God who wants to take care of their weakness and their fear and their doubt. God, if there's any of us who are struggling in any of these areas and we just need to give up our life and just surrender it to say, Jesus, take my life. Jesus, I trust your presence. Lord, if we need to trust you more, help us to do that. Give us the strength. Because even those things we can't do in our own strength, we need to trust in you to give us strength and hope and peace and guidance and righteousness and redemption and all the things that you give, but you only give those through Jesus and not through us. So, Lord, I pray you remind us of that. Help us to run to Jesus, as we sang earlier, that the cry of our heart would be to give me Jesus more than anything else. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.